Jogcast, following our curiosity, with Melanie Jandra, Liz Guzman, Libby Jones, Kat Maguire, Mark Perver and Christina Smith. The Jodcast, August 2012, Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Kat Maguire and joining me today are Libby Jones. Hello. And Liz Guzman. Hello. Um, we have some sad news at the beginning of this uh, Jogcast. Um, the founder of Jodrell Bank and our original director, Sir Bernard Lovell, have passed away uh, aged 98. And Sir Bernard Lovell um, was a fantastic man and founder of radio astronomy in the UK and is the heart of our institute. So before we start the show, we'd like here's Megan with a look back on the life of Sir Bernard Lovell. Sir Bernard Lovell, founder and first director of the University of Manchester's Jodrell Bank Observatory in Cheshire, died on the 6th of August 2012 at the age of 98. Emeritus Professor of Radio Astronomy, he was the father of British Radio Astronomy and the man behind the iconic 76-metre Mark I telescope at Jodrell Bank, later renamed in his honour on the occasion of its 30th anniversary. Born in 1913 in Oldland Common, Gloucestershire, Sir Bernard studied at the University of Bristol, completing his PhD before moving to Manchester in 1936 to work in the Department of Physics. During the Second World War, he took a break from research on cosmic rays to work on radar systems for air defence. During this time, he led the team that successfully developed the H2S radar systems, work for which he was later awarded the OBE. Sir Bernard returned to Manchester in 1945 and continued his pre-war research on cosmic rays. During the war, he had noticed that the radar operators ignored certain echoes on their screens. While no one knew what created these echoes, the operators knew that they were not aircraft, and Lovell suspected that they may be related to cosmic rays. Through his contacts in the military, he acquired some unwanted 4-metre radar equipment, which he set up near the physics department in Manchester. At that time, however, the interference caused by the direct current needed to operate a nearby tramline was so strong as to render the equipment completely useless. Then, in late 1945, Lovell took his equipment to the university's botanical station at Jodrell Bank, founding the observatory. Today, the site is dominated by the world-famous 76-metre Lovell telescope, conceived by Sir Bernard in 1951. Together with engineer Sir Charles' husband, he built the telescope which has become an icon of British science and engineering, and remains a landmark in the Cheshire countryside more than 50 years after its completion. A hugely ambitious project, the telescope was by far the world's largest when it was completed in 1957, and within days it was used to track the rocket which carried Sputnik 1 into orbit, marking the dawn of the space age. Today the Lovell telescope is still the third largest fully steerable telescope in the world, and a series of upgrades mean that it is now more capable than ever, observing phenomena undreamed of when it was first conceived. Today the Lovell telescope plays a key role in world-leading research on pulsars, testing our understanding of extreme physics, including Einstein's general theory of relativity. In 2011, Jodrell Bank Observatory was placed on the UK government's shortlist for World Heritage Site status, recognising its unique role in the development of our understanding of the universe. The observatory continues to play a major role in astronomical research. It is now home to the E. Merlin array of seven radio telescopes spread across the UK. Based on the techniques of linking telescopes over long distances, pioneered by the team which Sir Bernard assembled at Jodrell Bank, the network is now connected by a high-speed optical fibre network, making it one of the most powerful telescope arrays in the world. 
Later this year, the international headquarters of the SKA organization will move to Jodrell Bank. The Square Kilometre Array will be the world's largest telescope, combining thousands of dishes and other receivers spread across thousands of kilometres. The SKA itself will be sighted in both Africa and Australia. In the seven decades since antennas first began to appear on the grounds of the old botanical station in Cheshire, many hundreds of scientists and engineers have worked and trained at Jodrell Bank, often going on to work at other observatories across the world. Even after his retirement in 1981, Sir Bernard retained a keen interest in the development of science at Jodrell Bank and beyond. He could often be found discussing a new scientific result, or the latest cricket match, over an afternoon cup of tea with fellow astronomers, continuing to come into work at the observatory until quite recently, when ill health intervened. Lovell was also a pioneer of public engagement with physics and engineering, creating the first dedicated visitor centre located next to the telescope, which opened in 1971. The telescope has since inspired generations of visiting schoolchildren to pursue careers in science, engineering and medicine. Outside the world of science, Sir Bernard was an accomplished musician, playing the organ at Swetnam Church for many years. He was also a keen cricketer, captain of the Chelford Cricket Club, and past president of the Lancashire County Cricket Club. He was also renowned internationally for his passion for arboriculture, creating arboretums at both the Quinta and Jodrellbank itself. Receiving his knighthood in 1961, Sir Bernard's legacy is immense, extending from his wartime work to his pioneering contributions to radio astronomy, and including his dedication to outreach and public engagement with scientific research. He was a great man and will be sorely missed by many. He is survived by four of his five children, fourteen grandchildren, and fourteen great-grandchildren. Thanks for that, Megan. He'll be sadly missed. And for those of you who want to hear about Sir Bernard talking in his own words, Heather Jodcast did three interviews with Sir Bernard. The first was with Ian Morrison from February 2007. And then we did some combined interviews following August, September and September Extra with uh, Dr Tim O'Brien. And it'd be, it's very nice just to listen to him talk in his own words about radio astronomy and the telescope, the Lovell Telescope, a Jodrell band that was named after him. And... Yeah, it's a very sad time here at Jodrell. Thanks for that, Libby. In the show this time, we talked to Professor Alan Hood about the solar atmosphere, Dr Jacqueline Hodge about observing submillimetre galaxies with the VLA, and Professor Ray Norris about the Evolutionary Map of the Universe project. And, as always, your astronomical questions are answered in Ask an Astronomer. But first, for all of that, Liz talks to Joe Bowler about the Square Kilometre Array in this month's Job Bites. Hello. So for the Dot Bite this month, we have um, Joe Bowler from the Interim Outreach Officer um, for the SKA. So thank you for being with us. Um, so tell us a little bit about your job in here. Okay. Well, I'm the Interim Outreach Officer for the Square Kilometre Array Project, and it's my job to tell people about what's going on, the progress, and to get people excited about the project. Okay. There are lots of people who need to know what's going on. They include young people to inspire them to become the next generation of engineers and astronomers, um, journalists, yeah. industry representatives, because the project's going to need people to build the telescope when it's ready, astronomers, not only radio astronomers, but also optical astronomers to make sure that a full spectrum of, uh, of astronomers know about the project, yeah. um, Politicians, they're also important. We need to get more countries on board and involved in the SKA organisation. 
and the community of radio astronomers who are already working on the project, they need to be kept up to date with progress and they also need resources, so pictures, images, news updates and so on to help them in their presentations and in their day-to-day work. And of course, there are engineers working on the project as well. Mustn't forget them. Yeah, perfect. So, okay, so this is really, really amazing because um, I guess sometimes scientists don't really get to say whatever they want to say to the general public. So I guess if you're the juncture, then that's pretty that's pretty good. We Most of us scientists, we need someone like that. <laughs> awesome. So, so... So your job, um, kind of, is it, I don't know, like, do, do you go and get to talk to the people or do these kind of press releases or? Yeah, I'm sort of an interface between the scientists, the engineers and the general public and the media. So when talking to the media, it tends to be press releases, especially yeah. if there's a big announcement. But then, for example, the site agreement, we invited journalists to come and hear the announcement themselves. So that was meeting them in person. We've okay. had people come out to Jodrell Bank um, and go up the Lovell Telescope where we can say, hey, this is the Lovell Telescope and the SKA will be X times bigger than this and we'll be able to do various different things. And so, yeah, we meet people face to face. We run events and meet people face to face, but we also do things online um, and have print materials that we send around the world so that people can get their hands on something physical as well. Okay. So when you mentioned when you talk to the politicians, how how do you do it? (laughs) That's really awesome. Like, how do you explain everything really? simple I guess right well that tends to happen at conferences and that sort of thing so we've got the conference stand um that we that we that we take around with us and um yeah it's just it's a matter of interpreting the information in a way that they want to hear so politicians tend to be more interested in about the benefits to them in their country if they get involved so although they might be superficially interested in the science Mm -hmm. generally they don't understand a really in-depth explanation that an astronomer might give and they're quite happy with a high level overview which is the sort of thing I'll give them I'll give them five key science projects which is what the SKA is planned to do but I'll I'll give it to them in in a sentence for each key science project and then I'll I'll talk about the other benefits that big science projects um, can offer. Oh, perfect. Um, so yeah, maybe just talking a little bit about the SKA project. So I guess everybody knows that it was selected to be built between us, um, Australia and South Africa. Yes. Right? Uh, so when is this going to happen? Do you? Um, well, the decision the decision was made, and we're in the beginning of the pre-construction phase now. So this is the start of the detailed design time um so in the next because the dual site means that there's going to be some changes to the design of the telescope necessarily because it's obviously going to be across two continents now instead of one there's a six month period starting now when the engineers are going to put their heads together and come up with a plan so that we know what this new instrument is going to look like and how to move forward and and what changes will be needed to the design so that's the plan at the moment yes Brilliant, perfect. And yeah, we also heard that. So the, the SKA headquarters is being built in Jodrell Bank. So the office right. are going to move, right? Yeah. yeah. So in November 2012, this yeah. November, the plan is to move all the staff who are here in the Turing Building in Man- central Manchester at the moment out to Jodrell Bank so that they will be located in a shiny, new, beautiful headquarters <laughs> building in the uh, shadow of the Lovell Telescope. I think it's going to be quite a cool building. Big glass windows overlooking the telescope. It's supposed to inspire the people working in it. Well, uh, maybe because I'm a scientist, but I get really inspired. Every time I go to Jodrell Bank, it's just 
Wow. It's amazing, isn't it? I think it's yeah. something to do with just the sheer size of the structure. It makes yeah. it makes you feel very small. It does. It <laughs> totally does. It's amazing. Brilliant. Perfect. Um, so, yeah, now that we're talking about the um, Square Kilometre Array, um, which is a massive, massive, massive array that is going to probably solve a lot of problems and get us, like, way more questions, I guess. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about the key projects? Yes. So... Astronomers would like the SKA to address five main key science projects. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's almost an additional one that you, you touched on there. It's almost certain that the SKA is going to open up more questions than it was originally designed to answer. So yeah. it's always going to be exploring the unknown and who knows what it's going to discover. But the five key science projects are in no particular order. Um, basically testing Einstein's theory. So asking was Einstein right about the theory of general relativity? Now, that's a huge question. Yeah. But it'll search for the existence of gravitational waves. It will test um, strong field forces of gravity close to black holes. Um, okay. And it will use pulsars. It'll be effectively using pulsars, an enormous gravitational wave detector. Brilliant. Perfect. So that's one. Yeah. Um the another one is is looking right back to see how the very first black holes and stars formed so so really looking at the evolution of the universe looking back to the dark ages the moment when the very first stars first lit up in the moments after the big bang um it'll also and this is one that always excites the general public it'll ask are we alone is oh, wow. there another intelligent civilization out there um it will be sensitive enough to potentially detect an airport radar on a planet 50 light years away. So if there is oh, a wow. radar on a planet 50 light years away, it's just possible the SKA will detect it. But it will also be able to look for complex molecules in space. So it, it'll look for the type of mo molecules that could potentially give rise to life, carbon-based molecules like amino acids and, and things like that. And it will also potentially be able to look for exoplanets forming in protoplanetary disks so yeah. potentially places where we could go and live one day maybe <laughs> if we really mess up earth who knows it's nice to dream but that's all that that science project is always one that sparks imagination in in most of the people that I, I get to talk to um it will also look at galaxy evolution and look at the theory of dark energy so the acceleration and the expansion of the universe has been attributed to this mysterious dark energy, but yeah. nobody really knows what it is. So the SKA will map galaxies and look at their relative positions and, and from that be able to investigate dark energy. And finally, and last but not least, the, it will look at cosmic magnetism. So physicists and astronomers have, have found out that there, much of space is, is magnetic, is magnetized, but very little is known about the origin and evolution of cosmic magnets. So um, the SK will it will look at the evolution of, of cosmic magnetism. Okay. Wow. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> there is a lot of topics. Like it's yeah, it's a lot. Everything, right? Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Well, um, thank you for talking with us. And, it's a pleasure. Um, yeah, best luck with everything. And yeah, keep us informed about everything that the SK is doing. I will do. Check out the website, www.skatelescope.org for all the latest news. Perfect. Thank you very much. Thanks for that, Liz. Next up, Christina talks to Professor Alan Hood about the solar atmosphere. We should point out that this is a NAM interview and as a result, there is a high level of unavoidable background noise.
I'm here now with Professor Alan Hood of uh, the University of St Andrews and he's given a plenary on um, the wonders of the solar atmosphere. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And um, I'm just going to start to ask, because the sun is made up of a lot of different layers, um, at what point do you really consider it to be the atmosphere of the sun? Basically when you look at the sun in uh, white light, and of course you should never look directly at the sun without the aid of an instrument, uh, what you see is the so-called surface of the sun. This is the photosphere. That is at a temperature of about 5,000 to 6,000 degrees. As we move up uh, in height, the temperature actually starts to rise. And then eventually, once we go through the region called the chromosphere, we come to a region where the temperature rises extremely sharply, called the transition region, and then we reach the final level of the uh, sun's atmosphere, the corona, where the temperature is about a million degrees. So it's a very big puzzle to understand how the temperature can rise as you move away from the sun. Why is that? Because you thought as you move away that it, it, it would be... Well, exactly. You would imagine that as you move away from the source of the energy, that's the nuclear core, that the temperature would continue to drop. So there has to be a mechanism by which the solar atmosphere is heated up to a million degrees. And that's one of the major puzzles still in solar physics, to try and understand exactly what is causing it. Okay. Are there any theories at the moment as to why that could be? There's several theories around just now, and what we do know is it's linked to the magnetic field. The magnetic field is very important in the solar corona, and it dominates the dynamics and the thermodynamics of the atmosphere. So we know that the regions where the magnetic field is stronger is hotter. So it's definitely linked to the magnetic field, and there are a variety of theories that are trying to explain why that is the case, but there is no consensus as yet. There's no consensus. Are there any projects sort of directly aimed at any observations? The observations are really very impressive nowadays, and you can look at the latest images from the sun at temperatures from 10 million down to 1 million, down to um, I don't know 10,000 and so on they're all online and the thing is the amazing thing is you can actually look at them you can just go You can go and look at them there's a variety of websites, there's a variety of apps for smartphones (laughs) as well Oh wow! so there's one called 3D Sun which works on a smartphone and it will give you the pictures of the sun taken one minute ago. Oh really? Absolutely incredible. What is, is it using a spacecraft? I assume it's yeah, spacecraft. yeah, yeah. It's using the um, information from the Solar Dynamics Observatory, the SDO, which was launched in 2010. Okay. And it's producing uh, full disk images of the sun every 15 seconds. Oh, wow. And that data is being streamed down to um, the Earth, and then it's possible to access that. It's freely available. Oh, wow. That's amazing. <laughs> Absolutely incredible. Um, earlier you said that um, magnetic fields are, are really important in the solar atmosphere. Are there any other effects from the magnetic fields that we can see? The, the magnetic field can give rise to instabilities and we will often see sudden eruptions and sudden brightenings in the solar atmosphere. The sudden brightenings are solar flares and they're very, very energetic events. Um, they're amongst the most violent explosions in the whole of the solar system. And as a consequence of that, we quite often see a lot of material that's blown off from the surface of the sun. This uh, can head out towards the Earth and can actually hit the Earth's magnetic field and will eventually cause the aurora. These eruptions are called coronal mass ejections, or CMEs for short. Okay, and that's, that's caused by, by differences in the 
magnetic That's field. normally caused by the magnetic field becoming unstable and it just erupts outwards. Okay. And is there, because I know that there's, there's a cycle of, of solar activity, is that also linked to the magnetic field? Yes, that's very much so. I mean, there, there's the um, solar dynamo, or the, uh, which has about an 11-year cycle, and that's due to the way the magnetic field is generated much deeper inside the sun. Um, but although there's this 11-year cycle where the number of sunspots increases and then decreases, these coronal mass ejections are continually being ejected from the sun. So it's not just directly linked to the solar cycle. The number of CMEs per day is linked to the solar cycle, but there are still CMEs erupting even when the sun's quiet. Okay, so there's, so it's not just um, not just the huge ones that we hear about no, no. on the news. They're, 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 they're happening all the time. time. They're happening all the time. Oh, wow. <laughs> and you wouldn't want to be an astronaut out in interplanetary space when these things go off. <laughs> And I guess, I guess there's quite a lot of high energetic particles that are... There's a lot of energetic particles and it's actually quite a major problem to understand why they've been accelerated to the speeds that they've been accelerated to. They often say that if some of these highly energetic um, electrons are to hit um, other spacecraft or satellites, they can actually destroy them. Oh, wow. So th- just because they charged particles as they hit the spacecraft will uh, cause um, discharges inside the um, spacecraft and destroy the um, electronics. Yeah, so it's very important to So to it's quite important, and I mean you can take evasive action if you know these things are coming. So there's a big branch of um, solar physics that's called space weather. This is all about trying to make predictions about when these major eruptions with the fast particles are going to actually hit. Okay. Are there any telltale signs like advanced warning? There's some advanced warnings and certainly from the active regions, the sunspot regions, um, we have a reasonable idea of which ones are likely to flare. But the actual timing and the direction it will go is not always easy to predict. So it's, it's still It's, it's still, still a little bit new. of hit and a miss. <laughs> but there are models that um, people have tried to model the magnetic field all the way from the sun out to the earth. And they have actually tried to make predictions as to whether these disturbances would hit or not. Do they tend to follow like a straight path or do they sort of... No, no, they tend to follow a spiral path. So okay. it's a little bit like um, if you're swinging a garden hose with water coming out. <laughs> Okay. Um, because the sun is rotating, these uh, eruptions tend to follow a spiral path as they come out. Wow. I mean, it's very difficult to um, get across just how exciting the um, sun actually is. You imagine, compared with other stars in the universe, that it's fairly quiet and it's fairly miserable. But actually, it's unbelievably dynamic. And there are the possibilities of a really major eruption that could cause major effects to our technology. Oh, like, like a really huge... Right, a very, very large flare. Back in the 1800s, there was an extremely large flare called the Carrington event, which, in which the aurora were actually seen down almost to the tropics. And had that wow. occurred <laughs> in these days, all of our computers would be destroyed. Like not, more or less. More or less, other than just <laughs> more completely destroyed. And the other problem is that it would knock out the uh, transformers on the power supplies. So of, we would go without yeah, power well, as well. We would, lose, we would lose all the electricity. Wow. So, so our sun is a lot more dynamic so than you sun can be a lot be. more dynamic, but luckily, so far, it's behaving <laughs> quite nicely. That's brilliant. 
Um, yeah, thank you very much for stopping to okay. talk to us. And Hi. yeah, thank you. Thanks for that, Christina. Now we have Melanie talking to Dr. Jacqueline Hodge about observing submillimeter galaxies with the VLA. Hi, this is Melanie, and I'm here today with Dr. Jacqueline Hodge from the Max Planck Institute for Astronomy in Heidelberg, Germany. Hi. Hello. It's quite a long trip to come and uh, see us in Manchester for the National Astronomy Meeting. Oh, it's not too bad. Do you like it? Yes, it's really nice. So you gave a, a very interesting talk today about a particular submillimeter galaxy uh, that you observe with the uh, the Very Large Array in New Mexico, uh, in the USA. And so before we start talking about it, can you tell me what's a submillimeter galaxy and why do we care about them in a nutshell? Sure. Um, so submillimeter galaxies are basically galaxies that are very bright in the submillimeter and astronomers are not very creative at naming things. <laughs> um, and what the submillimeter is, is a wavelength longer than the optical. So, and the reason these things are so bright in the submillimeter is that they're forming a lot of stars. Um, the young stars emit UV radiation. Um, this radiates the dust, and then the dust re-radiates this. And this is what we are seeing when we see submillimeter galaxies. So we're basically seeing the dust. Yes. Massive dusty galaxies. That's really cool. There's this dust emitting stuff. I, I think it's really cool. <laughs> so you were talking about this one particular, uh, galaxy very far away that was, uh, like how old is it? Uh, so we're seeing it as it was 12 billion years ago. For a universe that's 13.5 billion years old, that's, that's one of like the great, 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 great great-great-grandparents of our galaxy. <laughs> That's right. And so what uh, what was special about it? Sure. So this particular galaxy is forming tons of stars. The Milky Way forms the equivalent of one sun per year, and this galaxy is forming 3,000 suns per year. That's a lot. How much How much bigger, more massive is it than, than our galaxy? Uh, it's probably roughly around five times as massive. So five times bigger, and it makes 3,000 times more stars. Right. That's a lot of star formation. Right. And so you, you see it very far away. Um, and is it different from other submillimeter galaxies? So it's actually the brightest galaxy in the Goods North field, and that the Goods North field is just a particular field that astronomers look at a lot. We have a lot of different multi-wavelength coverage on it. Um, so it's particularly bright. It's also particularly far away for a submillimeter galaxy. Uh, most submillimeter galaxies we see at slightly lower redshift. So maybe um, 10 billion years ago instead of 12 billion years ago. Okay. And how easy is it to find out the redshift of those galaxies, especially something that's so far away? Right. Um, so that's an excellent question. Um, and in fact, so this galaxy... Um, if you look at it in the optical, it's very unassuming. It, you wouldn't know that it's forming 3,000 solar masses per year. And so we actually didn't know its redshift until it was accidentally detected in um, molecular gas. Greatest discovery is always made by accident. <laughs> right. So what happened was um, they were looking at a different galaxy in a rotational transition of carbon monoxide, which is how we probe the molecular gas in galaxies. And in the same field, they happen to see a very strong emission line from this galaxy. And so using that, they were able to determine its redshift. 
So how does that work exactly? You just look at certain elements and then you know how far galaxies are? Right. So we know, we know what the spectrum should look like if it was here at Z of zero, at a redshift of zero. So what we can do is then we can redshift it to what it would be like 12 billion years ago. And based on that, we can figure out the redshift. So you do need more than one line though. Yeah. Because I guess all the lines, if you only have one, they, they all look the same. Exactly. <laughs> cool. Um, I've was talking with other people working on some millimeter galaxies and were telling me that most of them are just the result of just galaxies merging together, like kind of, uh, cannibalism of, uh, of galaxy. But I think the galaxy you were presenting today is slightly different. Can you expand on this? Sure. Yeah. So we think that the way most submillimeter galaxies formed is by a merger of two massive galaxies. Um, but the thing about that is that you would expect the molecular gas to be distributed in a particular way. We can do simulations of these mergers, and we see that the molecular gas is very concentrated in a starburst right around the nucleus of the galaxy. Um, and so one of the things that's very interesting uh, to astronomers is to try to figure out the origin of submillimeter galaxies. And this particular galaxy, what we see is that the gas is very extended um, and clumpy. It looks like a disk. In fact, we see disk rotation. So okay. This so it's is, this not is, what you would expect if it was a merger. Exactly. This is not the smoking gun of a major merger. It doesn't mean that it's not, but it's just... It's just weird. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's really cool. So if this particular galaxy was not the result of a major merger, how did it come to be? Right. So we think that it possibly formed by something that's called cold mode accretion. And what this means is that cold gas just accretes directly onto the galaxy from the surrounding intergalactic medium. By gravitation. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And, and that would form such a massive object. Exactly. You for for cold mode accretion, you would expect a more extended gas distribution. You would expect to see it rotating like a disk. It would be rather clumpy, and that's exactly what we see. And so that's why this this particular object is so interesting. Is it something that uh, you see often in more local galaxies in like more now time than history time? Yeah. Um, so maybe not local, but around a redshift of two, which is about ten billion years ago we think that quite a few normal star-forming galaxies formed via something like cold-mode accretion. Okay, so it, it could be one of the first cold-mode accretion galaxies. Yeah, it could just be the most massive end of normal star-forming galaxies and not some special major merger. Oh, this is really cool. Well, thank you very much, Jackie. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. And uh, enjoy the rest of the meeting. Thanks. Thanks for that, Melanie. Next up, we have Christina talking to Professor Ray Norris about the EMU projects. Hello, I'm Christina and joining me today is um, Professor Ray Norris from um, CSIRO and he just gave a talk about um, the EMU project. So can you tell me a little bit, what, what is EMU? Okay, so well, EMU stands for Evolutionary Map of the Universe and our goal is to a look at galaxies going right back to just like half a billion years after the Big Bang. And the reason we're doing this is because we want to know how galaxies formed and how they evolved into modern-day galaxies. So if you go way back, you see in the early days of the universe, there's all this hydrogen and stuff which collapses down into galaxies. 
And somehow they get black holes. We don't know how the black holes get there. Um, they get there far too early. And so these are the black holes at the centres of the galaxies? Yeah. So the, these are black holes which are maybe a billion times the mass of our sun. And um, you ask a theorist, where do these black holes come from? And the standard answer is, oh, you maybe get little black holes which f first form in potential whales. And these little black holes merge and become bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, that's fine, but that process takes billions of years. And we're seeing these billion solar mass black holes half a billion years after the Big Bang. So something else is happening. We, we know there's something wrong with that model. There's, there may be some really fundamental physics involved. And you've got questions like that all the way through to the modern day. How do these early quasars and galaxies turn into our modern-day Milky Way with the sun and the Earth and people and trees and all that? And we actually don't know how that works. You know, we've got bits of that picture and what we're trying to do in EMU is to use radio waves uh, to probe galaxies all the way back and then try to sequence them. It's a bit like DNA sequencing. We're going to get all these little fragments and we're going to try to join them together in the right order and see if we can figure out how one type of galaxy evolves into another type of galaxy. Okay, so how, how exactly will you be doing that? Is it, is it a survey? Is it individual observations? Yeah, so it's a survey. Um, it's, it's quite interesting the way it came about because... Um, uh, many people will have heard of the square kilometre array, which is the big thing that all, all radio astronomers are pushing at the moment. And as part of the build-up to the square kilometre array, several countries, including Australia, built SKA Pathfinder telescopes. So in Australia, we've built this thing called ASCAP, the Australian SKA Pathfinder. And, and it, the idea is to develop, well, show that the site is suitable for the SKA and to develop technology and so on. But from my point of view, the fascinating thing is that ASCAP is a fantastic telescope in its own right, and it's particularly good for surveys like this, right? So it, it maybe can't see, if you look at one, if you want to look at one particular point in the sky, ASCAP is not the right telescope. It's not built for that. ASCAP is built for looking at large areas of the sky, and it's just phenomenally powerful. Uh, it's going to be the most uh, powerful telescope for surveys in the, in the world. And so using ASCAP, um, we're going to survey the whole sky from the South Celestial Pole to halfway up the Northern Sky. And then one of our sister organisations in the Netherlands is going to do the top quarter of the sky. So between us, we'll actually do the, the whole sky. ASCAP is this fantastic survey telescope. And with EMU, um, we're going to use it to look at the radio continuum. That's just all the radio hiss from all these galaxies um, and, and try to figure out what's going on in them. So, for example, we, we see two types of radio emission come from galaxies on the whole. Firstly, from all the wherever you get stars forming, you get shock waves, you get supernovae, you get electrons whizzing around magnetic fields, and all these electrons produce a, a steady hiss, synchrotron emission, and we can pick these up and we see these in all star-forming galaxies. The other thing we see is that when you get one of these billion solar-mass black holes in the middle of galaxies... Uh, often you get two jets of radio emission, or sorry, two jets of electrons being squirted out from the black hole, and these also generate radio waves, and uh, and they turn into big bubbles at the end. Um, and we we can also map these. So using these, if you like, these two ways, we can uh, detect both star-forming galaxies and active galaxies, the ones with black holes in. Um, and we know actually these two processes are very tightly coupled. We don't know why, um, but when you look at how 
star formation in the universe changes over time. It sort of ramps up after the Big Bang, um, reaches a crescendo about five billion years ago, and then dies off. And then we find the black holes do a similar thing. That they uh, Again, they start off faint, they build up to a crescendo, and then die away again. And we see it in individual galaxies as well. So why, do, why are the black holes linked to the star formation? We don't understand. So you take something like our Milky Way, we've got this big disk of gas, about 30,000 light years across. You've got all the stars being born. So in our own neighborhood, we've got things like the Orion Nebula, where you can see stars being born. And we know we have a black hole in the middle of our galaxy. How would the Orion Nebula know what's going on in that black hole in the middle? There's no way they're communicating. And yet somehow stars and galaxies know what the black hole is doing or vice versa. So there has to be something linking them. And so the, the sort of thing that might be going on is, well, suddenly in the early universe, uh, imagine you've got two big spiral galaxies like our Milky Way colliding. And we know they do. They have happens a lot in the early universe. And when two big spirals collide, obviously all the gas gets thrown into a frenzy. It probably starts feeding the black hole. And so you get all this active galaxy emission from the black hole. And it probably also triggers a whole load of star formation. Yeah, This is just a guess. We don't actually know that's what's happening. But these are the sorts of things we're exploring. We know they're linked in some way. Okay, and these are things that you'll be able to, to analyse by using ASCAP and EMU? Yeah, yeah. so we, we, we reckon with EMU we're going to detect about 70 million galaxies. Awful lot of data. <laughs> and, you know, you think of a, somebody doing a PhD usually you know, analyses a few galaxies, you know, 70 million. There aren't enough PhD students in the world to analyse all that data. And so obviously we have to do things in different ways. So how is it actually going to be processed? Is it all going to be, um, is, it, is it going to be an automatic system or is like you said that it's too much data for a group of people to, to examine. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly right. So um, when the data comes off the telescope, um, we will have a pipeline processor, which actually analyzes all the data in real time. So right now, astronomy PhD students often sit there, their laptops analyzing data. You just cannot do that. We're going to get 70 petabytes of data a year. Wow. So all the stuff has to be done in a pipeline. And uh, another thing that we're doing a bit, differently and, and actually that's really hard making that pipeline we've got a really good software team working on that yeah the, another thing we're doing differently from other telescopes is that all the data coming out of that we're going to put in the public domain whereas in the past a lot of data off telescopes individual researchers have kept themselves until they've fully analyzed it and so on in this case we're saying there's, you know, there's more data than we can possibly handle let's put it out there in the public domain let's everybody use it now that's the way to get science out of it let the Best people have access to all the data. And so as soon as the data is processed from the pipeline, we do a quality control step and we put it in the public domain. And we'll use things called virtual observatory tools to access it. So, okay, you can't access the data on your laptop, but you can go in with your laptop and you use virtual observatory tools. You go in there and be able to extract bits of data. You'll be able to play with the data. You'll be able to mine the data, do interesting plots. And who knows, might be some high school students actually makes the most fantastic discovery of emu that'd be absolutely fantastic you know i i'm too old to be bo bothered about what papers i get my name on you know if some high school student made the uh, most fantastic discovery that'd be absolutely wonderful that'd be a vindication of everything we're doing that's really exciting it's really amazing that it's going to be straight out in the public domain instead of as uh, as an individual researcher yeah. having that, that data to yourself for a certain amount of time yeah um, that's yeah, so what we've seen seen with the uh sloan survey when they put the stuff in the public domain and um a lot of um, 
I was going to say amateurs, they're not even amateur astronomers, just lay people, intelligent lay people, uh, using the Galaxy Zoo tool to look at Sloan data. And people made real discoveries and scientific papers being written um, by people making their own discoveries on the web. I, I think science is going to change a lot in the future like that. Yeah, definitely. And and you just mentioned Galaxy Zoo. Um, I mean, is there any plan to make some of the data available in that sort of style for, for the general public to analyse? Yeah. So we're going to have these catalogues of radio galaxies coming out. And to do the science, we really need to identify, cross-identify them with the optical and infrared galaxies. So in other words, we see a, a radio blob, a shape. We want to know what it looks like in the optical and infrared. Well, we're developing software to try to do that, but we know the software won't be able to do the complicated cases. And we reckon we're going to have, I don't know, maybe 5 million galaxies that our, our software will say, yeah, there's something there, but I can't do the identification. And it's a human brain. The human brain's really good at recognising patterns. And so we're working with the Galaxy Zoo people in Oxford uh, to develop a, a tool called Radio Zoo. And we'll invite members of the public to come along and help us do those cross-identifications. And, of course, people want to do that. The reward, they guess, is they're part of cutting-edge science. And it's always the outside chance that I might discover something completely new. I think that's really exciting because I know that there's quite a number of our listeners who do things like like Galaxy Zoo and yeah. the, the Planet Hunter Project and all that sort of stuff. So, I mean, in the future, that's something that they'll be able to be part of yeah, as well. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so is there anything else you'd like to talk about? Um, there are a few other things that we're going to do with EMU as well. Um, one of them is, is, is funny because we hadn't actually thought of it when we originally wrote the proposal. So we wrote the proposal saying we're, we're going to study the evolution of galaxies. We want to know how galaxies form and evolve. And while we were planning the survey, after our proposal had been accepted, um, it occurred to some of us that maybe we could actually do some cosmology as well. Maybe we can look at things like dark energy and whether general relativity is right and things like that. And it turns out just because we've got so many galaxies, um, you can do things in rather different ways. So right now, people do, well, people do cosmology in lots of different ways, but um, you can look at the effect, for example, of uh, the gravitational potential of clusters, how they affect uh, photons from the microwave background. Well, we can do that too, but rather than identifying clusters, because we've got so many galaxies, we can use brute force statistical techniques, the so data mining techniques. And so we can do some rather nice cross-correlations between our data and things like the background, microwave background data from Planck and WMAP, um, or with optical surveys. And it turns out that doing this sort of brute force data mining stuff, you can actually put constraints on cosmology, which are tighter than are being put on by some of the current big cosmology experiments. So we're still going to do a lot more work to find out exactly um, how how carefully do we need to calibrate stuff, for example, for, for this to work. But it, it's looking very, really promising. So it's rather interesting that something we hadn't actually thought of at the beginning of the project is now become one of the main science drivers of the project. Uh, there's something else as well. When we do a big survey like this, um, we're going out into what astronomers often call new parameter space. If you like, it's you know, we're boldly going where no human's ever gone before. We're, we're observing a different, observing the universe in a different way. And when you observe the universe in a different way, we know from history you tend to find things that you didn't expect. So we, we've we've written the proposal for the project to look at the evolution of galaxies, but we know there's a really good chance we might find find something completely unexpected, something you don't even know about. So a good example is when um, Jocelyn Bell, way back, in, I guess, in the 60s, and she was a PhD student at Cambridge, and 
she was trying to look at the uh, interstellar medium using this specific radio telescope. She noticed these little bits of scruff on her chart recorder. And eventually she realised that these were something really new, uh, something hadn't been before. It turned out, that turned out to be the discovery of pulsars. So Jocelyn Bell, a PhD student, discovered pulsars. And when you look back at how that discovery was made, what it was, it's a, a really bright person who really knew what they were doing, they understood the instruments, and with an open mind, receptive to new things, and recognised something that was wrong, and then doggedly pursuing it, even when people said, you know, no, that's rubbish, it's a bit of interference. She said, no, no, it's something real. Well, in the case of EMU, we have a problem that people can't get really close to the instruments. So what we're doing here, we, we, we've got a, a, um, a project called WTF, <laughs> <laughs> which stands for course. For wide field outlier finder, of course, <laughs> <laughs> to find unexpected things. So we, we and what we're going to do, we're going to try to write a bit of software which works like Jocelyn Bell, um, because there's going to be just so much data. No, no bright PhD student is going to get into the dark recesses of that database. And so this data uh, mining technique is going to go through the data, looking for things that you didn't expect to be there, looking for things that don't fit the things that we expect. So I, I, as far as I know, this is the first time anybody's tried to do this. Uh, so I don't know if it work or not, but it's going to be great fun trying. Yeah, I mean that'll be absolutely brilliant, and it's it's such a a wide um, wide range of things that can be done with this instrument. It's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, it is. I reckon so. <laughs> Thank you very much for stopping to talk to us on the Drodcast, and yeah, good luck in all your research. Thank you. Thanks for that, Christina. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other things we can't fit in anywhere else: the odds and ends. So my story is about the Kennedy Space Center in Florida, which, as you probably know, was responsible for the launching of the space shuttles and, um, of course, humans to the moon. And this year it celebrates its 50th anniversary. And to celebrate this milestone, they have decided to open their doors to Google Street View. So this means that views of the Space Center, normally only accessible to employees and astronauts, are available for everybody to see. Um, so on your virtual walk through all the amazing facilities there, you can travel the same routes that the astronauts travelled from the operations and checkout building to the launch pad. And you can stand inside the firing room in the launch control centre. And you can also see the space shuttles Atlantis and Endeavour, which, are, which were in the vehicle assembly building at the time when the images were shot at the beginning of this year. And that's among lots of other things. So obviously there's nothing that can match physically visiting somewhere, but as these are views that most people wouldn't normally ever get to see, I think it's a fantastic idea and a great way to encourage astronauts of the future. Why can't they put that in a simulator? So you sort of you're in a little suit and you're pretending you're walking along and you've got a three D view. That's going, maybe that's the next level. Going maybe around you and you can pretend going. that you're about to go up. Maybe yeah, that's where street view views going. Or maybe the Kennedy Space Centre will allow people to do all these things you could just do it anywhere at home you could on your computer just scrolling along pretending to be an astronaut you could sit there in a space (laughs) i'm sure that's what you do on your weekends isn't it libby well i have a tin pot on my head instead but (laughs) (laughs) that's pretty awesome (laughs) and so we'll we'll link to the um we'll link to that that tour that Google Street View tour in the show notes anyway, if you want to have a go for yourself. It must be really cool, though, to be pretending like you look, like see the view from what the firing of the rocket and just looking up and seeing everything around you and the walk that all these people have done before yeah, going into be space. It would be amazing. The next, I mean, it'd be amazing to do, but the next best thing is to, to be able to have a look at what they would have seen. 
So what have you got for us this week, Liz? I'm going to talk about NASA. So um, uh, NASA is trying to be attractive to young people. Um, they said that mainly kids today don't know a time without space exploration, which is it's kind of true. So they, they want to make new things to make them uh, to be attracted to NASA. So one of the things they have done is they recently released Angry Birds Space, which is designed to encourage users to consider anti-gravity trajectories while they eliminate egg-stealing pigs. Wow. <laughs> it sounds so, pretty awesome. So other than the anti-gravity, is it different from other Angry Birds, like the format of it? Well, I haven't played, but Libby has. So of course, Libby I've played has. this game. So they have angry birds and, and pigs in space helmets, and they're orbiting planets. And you have trajectories, so you can plot the trajectories of the the, ang- the angry bird as they go around several planets, and all the different gravities and interactions. And I didn't realise this game had been made by NASA. So I was actually, when the first time I played it, I was really impressed with the physics behind it. In fact, that was the reason why I actually ended up playing the game. <laughs> yes, I know. Brilliant. How bad is that? Someone told me, oh, look at the the, the acceleration circular coordinates or whatever. And I was just like, okay, angry birds. I can't cope with standard gravity angry birds, let alone anti-gravity. I don't it, think I could cope. It's really genius, the levels. The level design is fantastic. And the backgrounds and everything, it definitely beats all the other angry birds. Awesome. So one of the other things that NASA is doing as well, um, they're going to do the first DJ spin from space. So it's the first ever orbiting DJ. The astronaut Joe Alcava will host the program. The program is entitled The Joe Show, New Rock from Space. Um, it's from the International Space Station, which is at 240 miles above Earth. And it will be broadcast on NASA's radio station which is in the NASA home page. So Cruz, which is the founder of the Third Rock Radio, it says that he will only be playing new music and during the breaks from the program, he will share facts about NASA and other technology developments. That sounds amazing. Yeah, so they're just going to be talking about space and then putting music that match with it. It's pretty awesome. They said, um, a Third Rock Radio, the DJs make an effort to match music with whatever they are reporting. And it's just an example to say the Apollo landing will definitely pair up well with Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, <laughs> which I really like that. So, yeah, it's pretty impressive. And um, we, we're going to put the links on the show notes so you can listen to the music from the St- International Space Station. Thanks, Liz. What have you got to talk about, Libby? Well, actually, on the Dark Side of the Moon comment, it was an interesting discussion in coffee this morning when we are talking about Sir Bernard Lovell. And what actually happened was the Russians were broadcasting a signal from the far side of the moon. And, sorry, this is a Pink Floyd um, reference and it made made me think of the story from this morning. And what happened is they were listening to the signal uh, and and it was like a fax machine. So there was reporters there in the Georgia Bank um, headquarters in the control room and they ran away back to their offices and picked up every single fax machine they could possibly get their hands on. And they eventually plugged it in to the telescope and uh, Georgia Bank managed to observe the very first image of the far side of the moon by interrupting um, the Russian signal. Wow. So apparently that made the Russians very unhappy. I can't imagine why. <laughs> uh, and we, yeah, the first, the, 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 the guy from the press who brought in all the, the fax machines to get this 
image, uh, ripped it off the, the printer straight away and sent and got it published on the first page the next morning. So that's how the first image for the dark side of the moon came about. Wow, that's pretty impressive. Astronomers are so cutthroat. <laughs> well, if, uh, unfortunately, it did mean that the, the, the rocket stopped broadcasting while I was in range of the Lovell telescope. Um, so, so there was a, a window of the day where they stopped sending signals because we could hijack it. But the interesting story about this image was the print, the, the fax machine wasn't quite at the right specifications. So it had the aspect ratios wrong. So all the creators were the wrong side. Oh. So they were ellipses rather than circles, but still, it shows you the power of what the Lovell Telescope were designed, and it's still um, a top class um, science observatory, and it's been going. I think it's the longest radio observatory running in the world, as well. Yeah. So, talking about that's that's very pioneering. Anyway, that was an aside. Um, what I was going to talk about. <laughs> was the Curiosity rover that has landed on the surface of Mars. And now this is the fourth NASA unmanned rover to land. But what's spectacular about this is the way it landed on the surface. Normally the rovers crash land and they have padding and it's fine, but because Curiosity is so big and heavy, the size of a small car and at 900 kilograms, that the, it had to involve some slightly different mechanics. So it, this involved a heat shield, a parachute, and... A sky crane. I believe people in Mission Control called it the seven minutes of terror because that's what they were going through when they were waiting for it to land. <laughs> I can imagine that, yeah. Oh, yeah, well, we can never really test this out before you do it, can you? So, oh, and, and people tuning in to watch the video, and I'm sure a lot of you have seen it, and we'll link to the video of the landing in the show notes. But it's such a cool, cool landing, and the curiosity rover to join in with the the other rovers that have been there and the mission of curiosity is to investigate the martian climate and the geology and uh, analyze the mineralogy of the the rocks and see if there's ever water present and actually have a look at how the atmosphere varied over time so we'll look forward to the science but as we talk right now at the time of recording curiosity is undergoing a system update so it's not all cut and dry yet for the rover so it's all the scientific instruments are going to be stopped and it's going to yeah, be having updates from from the headquarters, and in the past, one one rover has not survived the updates or, or <gasps> one mission. So things dun, 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 dun. several but, days of terror while they wait for that. Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> hopefully, be fine. But what's also very unique about this rover was it actually could start being used the moment it landed. So, yeah. and it also had uh, several systems involved when it was landing. Um, whereas the other ones had to take a while and, and start the, you couldn't use science straight away. And it's been back, the first images have been back. I'm not entirely sure that's correct. <laughs> correct. But uh, we're going to go for being back anyway. Um, the first images uh, with its camera and first 3D images. So it's super cool. That's pretty awesome. And it's going to give company to opportunity. Yay. <laughs> and in, in keeping with games designed by NASA, there is a game for the Xbox Connect where you can simulate the the landing sequence for Curiosity with your body. I'm not okay. entirely sure how you do that because I've not played that computer game. Yet. Yet. <laughs> Brilliant. This evening, that's definitely being tried. <laughs> awesome. And now from one Curiosity to another, 
Here's Mark answering your astronomical questions. Hello. Well, we've got some pretty deep questions this time around, uh, which I'm going to try and tackle. The first one is from Philip LaRiche. He refers to a previous Ask an Astronomer in which Tim said that the isotropy of the universe implies that it was all in thermal equilibrium at some time in the past. And Philip says, could it be that actually different regions of the universe were never in thermal equilibrium, but just had the same temperature because they came from the same sort of process? And as an extension, could we find out one day that all physical constants have to have the values that they do? Well, this is really deep. Uh, so let's just explain all the bits of the question. Firstly, what did Tim mean? Well, he said that the universe is isotropic, which means it looks the same in all directions. Not exactly the same, of course, but generally the same on large scales. So we see structures of the same sizes all around us, galaxies, clusters of galaxies, and so on. And more than that, we can detect the cosmic microwave background which is radiation that was emitted about 400,000 years after the start of the universe and now comes at us from everywhere. And no matter which direction it comes from, it has almost exactly the same temperature, which means the same brightness, essentially. Astronomers think that all this sameness is weird. So why? Well, we think the universe started with a Big Bang, that it was very small and hot at the beginning, and that space then actually expanded and dragged things apart from one another. Observations of faraway galaxies tell us that the Big Bang happened about 14 billion years ago, and that the universe is still expanding today. Now, light has a certain speed, which means that when we look far away, we're looking at things as they were long ago. And some things could be so far away that their light has not had time to reach us since the start of the universe. And when we look really far in opposite directions, it seems as though the light should not have had time to travel from one side to the other since the universe began. Because light is the fastest thing that exists, that means that these two sides should not have had any contact with each other at all, ever. So we think that the fact that they do look the same, and the fact that the cosmic microwave background all looks the same, means that there was a time when every part of the universe was in contact. We explain this by postulating that there was a period of extremely rapid expansion of space shortly after the Big Bang, and we call this inflation. It means expansion that was faster than light, and believe it or not, this is possible when you're talking about space itself expanding. And this inflation took things that were once in contact out of contact with each other. Then expansion slowed down. So when we look across the universe, everything looks similar because even those very far away parts of the universe were once in contact with each other. Tim talked about thermal equilibrium, meaning that all the parts of the universe had about the same temperature in the past, and the cosmic microwave background therefore also has about the same temperature everywhere. And thermal equilibrium can only happen when things are in contact with each other. So that's the previous question Philip was referring to. But he says, well, what if inflation isn't actually the explanation? And that's fair enough, because we don't currently know why it should have happened. He says, what if these far-flung areas of the universe weren't in touch with each other, but just started off basically the same, under the same physical laws, and therefore turned out the same? And he uses a very nice analogy of two cups of coffee. They come from the same machine, so they turn out the same it doesn't mean that they were ever in contact with one another. Now, the reason the early universe doesn't work like cups of coffee, 
lies in the murky world of quantum physics. And you might not be too surprised to learn that it all comes down to what we call the uncertainty principle. This is a fundamental part of quantum physics because quantum physics describes everything as waves. And it means that you can't know all the physical properties of a system to perfect accuracy at the same time. There's always some uncertainty, hence the name. And this uncertainty is not about having bad instruments to measure things. It can't be overcome even with the best instruments. And the result is that two different systems can have different properties, even if they should be exactly the same. They're never the same, because within that uncertainty, they can be different for no reason at all. Now, philosophers may argue about the absolute truth of this, but it's certainly the model that quantum physics describes, and that's always been a very good model for describing reality. But uncertainty is only noticeable in systems normally if they are very small or have very concentrated energy, like the early universe. It doesn't describe cups of coffee very well because they're comparatively big and have quite low energy, so their behaviour is predictable. But in the early universe, areas that are not in touch with each other could be different just because of quantum uncertainty. They could have different amounts of energy and different temperatures. Even within an area, you can get fluctuations, so differences in temperature and density, which are tiny, but inflation blows them up much bigger so that they result in the structures we see today, galaxies and so on. In a universe that's all in contact, the temperature balances out so that the fluctuations are of similar sizes everywhere, which is what we observe when we see this isotropic universe now. So to answer your main question, Philip, if bits of the early universe weren't in contact with each other, we would expect quantum uncertainty to leave them looking quite different nowadays. Different sizes of structures and different temperatures for the cosmic microwave background. The fact that it all looks the same suggests that everything was in touch just after the Big Bang. So it seems that you can't make the universe exactly the same way twice. This leads to the other part of Philip's question. Might we one day find out that all physical constants have to have the values they do? That mathematically it's the only way things can work? So that's specific numbers like the speed of light and what's called big G, which quantifies the strength of gravity. Now this really is fundamental. And the answer is that we have no special reason for thinking that physical constants or the laws of physics would have to be the same in different universes. If there are regions that have never been in contact with us, we can call them separate universes, and we think that they could have different values for the physical constants. Now, of course, measuring the speed of light in metres per second, for example, is arbitrary because we've defined the size of a metre and we've defined the length of a second. But if you compare the constants to each other, you can get quantities that don't depend on that. One famous one is called the fine structure constant, which tells us about the strength of the electromagnetic force. It's a combination of other constants multiplied together, and the result is that it has no units. Its value is about 1 over 137, or, if you like decimal, 0.007. And as far as we know, this number could be totally different in another universe. As far as we know. But interestingly, if some constants didn't have the values they do, then you wouldn't get things like atoms forming from protons and electrons. So it seems as though the constants are fine-tuned in such a way that interesting things like atoms and planets and human beings can arise. Some people think this is evidence that there are multiple universes with all different physical laws and that we are here because our universe happened to have just the right numbers 
to allow us to develop. Now, whether you believe that or not, I can't tell you whether physical constants could definitely have different values in another universe. But we think they could, because we don't know of any good reason why not. Okay, let's go on to a slightly more practical question. Charles Woolley found a back-of-the-envelope calculation on the internet about how far away radio transmissions can be detected from. He says he read that a radio dish 2.8 kilometers across will be needed to detect alien television signals from Alpha Centauri, our nearest star after the Sun. That's assuming they use the same TV transmitting power that we Earthlings do. He wants to know whether you could detect the same signal with an interferometer which had a baseline of 2.8 kilometers. And he also wants to know if we could produce pictures and sounds from the signal. First off, I have to admit I haven't done the calculations myself. The Lovell telescope at Jodrell Bank is 76 metres across, so a radio telescope 2.8 kilometres across would be enormous, that's 2,800 metres. Having said that, in about 12 years' time, we'll have the Square Kilometre Array, or SKA, which will be much larger than any radio telescope we have now. Its collecting area of a million square metres will be equivalent to a dish 1.1 kilometres in diameter, which is very big, but still behind the 2.8 kilometres that Charles read. But I found a recent paper by some American researchers who looked at what we could detect with the SKA. They think that TV transmissions like our own could be picked up 50 light years away by the SKA. And Alpha Centauri is only about 4 light years away, so they're actually more optimistic than the source Charles found. And I'll link to that paper in the show notes. So the main question is, would an interferometer with a baseline of 2.8 kilometers be just as good as a dish with a diameter of 2.8 kilometers? And the answer is no. An interferometer in terms of radio is a collection of receivers which you point all at the same thing and then correlate their signals together in a special way so that they act as one big telescope. So the SKA will have many, many dishes and receivers and it will be an interferometer. The main reason for using interferometers is to make radio images. So first of all, I want you to dispel any idea that radio waves are sound, because they aren't, they're a type of light. And that means that we can make images of things which emit radio waves. So quasars, for example, can produce lovely images, and I'll link to one of those as well in the show notes. Now, making a good radio image is hard, because the wavelength of a radio wave is much longer than the wavelength of a visible light wave. And that means the resolution you get is not as good. So small things in the image become fuzzy. But if you can make your radio telescope bigger, you can improve the resolution so that you can see small details. So the further apart you put your receivers in an interferometer, the better the resolution gets. Sometimes astronomers do interferometry with telescopes that are separated by thousands of kilometers just to get a sharper image. The separation between two receivers is called a baseline. So when Charles referred to an interferometer with a baseline of 2.8 kilometers, you've got to imagine two receivers or dishes 2.8 kilometers apart. But what you don't get by moving the dishes further apart is any improvement in sensitivity. Sensitivity is the ability to detect faint radio emission. So you can imagine moving your dishes further apart and getting a sharper image, but the image won't get any brighter overall. The sensitivity depends on the total collecting area of the dishes, so the areas of each dish added together. In other words, you can only collect as much light 
as the individual receivers collect. If you're trying to detect alien broadcasts, you're not interested in trying to make an image of a large object that's out there in space. You just want to home in on the signal given off by the alien's radio transmitter. So you make your collecting area as big as you can, but you don't worry about the spacing of your dishes. However, you might use an interferometer because it's an easier way of adding collecting area than building one gigantic and very heavy dish. Now, there are other ways to improve your telescope sensitivity. One is bandwidth, which means how much of the frequency band you're looking at. It's like the range of colours that an optical telescope looks at. Hopefully, ET emits a signal with a very narrow bandwidth, which is equivalent to them concentrating all their signal into one colour instead of spreading it out all across the rainbow. That way, we can concentrate on just that frequency range and ignore everything else, and that helps to exclude noise or radio crackle. And we can also try to reduce the noise as much as possible so that the signal comes through. One way to do this is to make your receiver very cold, because a warm receiver actually generates noise inside itself. Another way, of course, is to just try to get away from all the man-made radio noise given out by mobile phones, electrical power lines and that sort of stuff. And this does give us one good reason for using an interferometer to try to detect aliens. Interferometers are made to detect signals which are the same at all the receivers. Signals that aren't the same at each receiver get rejected automatically by the process of interferometry. So if your dishes are far enough apart, the noise environment that they're in will be different, allowing you to mostly ignore that noise. Not completely, but mostly. So let's say the aliens happen to broadcast on the same frequency as BBC One in the UK. By correlating signals between a receiver in the UK and another one in the USA, where you don't have BBC One broadcasting on that frequency, you can pretty much ignore BBC One. Whereas the alien TV show will be detected in both the UK and the USA. So there's a good reason for using an interferometer. The last part of the question was, could we produce pictures and sounds from an alien signal? Well, in principle, yes. If you have a good mobile phone, it can give you pictures, sounds, text, any data, basically, from the radio waves it receives. It's all encoded into the radio waves. The problem is, if it came from aliens, then how would we interpret it? Which bits of the data should be turned into pictures, and which into sounds? We'd have to experiment and see if we could get anything out of it. If the signal is very weak when it reaches us, that might be difficult you'd hope for some very simple and clearly encoded information. It might be hard to separate all the data for complex images and sounds in a weak signal. But in any case, an interferometer would be just as good for this as a single dish. The main thing will be to have as much collecting area as possible and to exclude as much unwanted noise as possible. OK, on to the last question. It's quite a deep one again. CJ asks, if time passes at different rates, depending on the gravitational field, why don't satellites disappear? Shouldn't they gradually move into the future and then blink out of existence? Well, fortunately, no. <laughs> but time does indeed pass at different rates, depending on the strength of the gravitational field you're in. The stronger the gravity, the slower time goes. And that's a prediction of Einstein's general theory of relativity. So down here on the surface of the Earth, gravity is stronger than it is where satellites are, hundreds or maybe thousands of kilometres above the Earth's surface. And so yes, time passes more slowly for us than it does for the satellites. 
Now that's weird. So it might be good to just think about what it actually means, the rate of time passing. We measure the passage of time by how long one process takes compared to another process. So, for example, how much does a clock move on in the time it takes Usain Bolt to run 100 metres? Well, his world record is 9.58 seconds. Usain Bolt running 100 metres is one process. 9.58 seconds passing on a clock is another process. This is all you can do. There is no absolute measure of how fast time passes. You can only compare one thing to another. So if we somehow construct a running track up among the satellites orbiting the Earth, and if we suppose that Usain Bolt will always run his 100 metres in exactly the same way, then a clock up there on the satellite will measure Usain up there doing the 100 metres in 9.58 seconds. Nothing will seem faster or slower. The difference only comes if we can somehow use a clock on the satellite to measure Usain Bolt's 100 metres when he's on Earth. Now we're comparing processes between two strengths of gravitational field. Now Usain will run 100 metres on Earth, and the satellite clock will record a time of more than 9.58 seconds. Let's say 10.58 seconds. Actually, the real effect will be much smaller, but let's just exaggerate it so it's really noticeable. From the point of view of the satellite, Usain, down here on Earth, appears to be running rather slower than usual. And all processes on the Earth similarly appear slow. And if Usain can somehow observe the clock on the satellite, he's going to think it ticks rather too quickly. So that's what it means. Earthbound clocks fall further and further behind clocks on satellites. This actually happens because on GPS satellites there are very accurate clocks and we can measure this effect. There's also another smaller effect due to the rotation of satellites and of the Earth's surface, but I'm ignoring that one. In terms of the existence of the satellite, remember that time is only a measure of the time of one process compared to another. In relativity, you normally talk about events, where an event is anything that we can measure a place and a time for. So you're an event right now. In a minute you might be sitting in the same place, but you'll be a different event because you exist at a different time. Or you might get up to make a cup of tea, and then you'll be an event in a different place as well as a different time. You could even define the atoms in your body as a separate event. The funny thing is, according to relativity, we can't always agree on the place and time of an event. Down here, we measure Usain Bolt as running 100 metres in 9.58 seconds. Up there, the clock says he did it in 10.58 seconds. But we can always agree on the events themselves. No matter how you look at it, Usain definitely ran a race. He started in the starting blocks, and he finished at the finish line. We can't agree exactly when and where it happened, but it definitely happened. Now let's say the satellite goes round the Earth a thousand times before it gets decommissioned, and then it's directed towards Earth and burns up in the atmosphere. The clocks on Earth and on the satellite won't agree about the amount of time that's passed during those 1,000 orbits. But all observers will be able to agree that the satellite launched, orbited 1,000 times, and then got burned up. It's the events that matter. This means that the satellite won't ever blink out of existence, however much its clock ends up disagreeing with one on Earth. And this is one of the big conceptual leaps that marked Einstein out as such a genius. Events are absolute, time and space are relative. To put it another way, things define space and time, not the other way around.
And one wonderful thing about GPS is that the difference in the rates at which time passes is taken into account in the clocks on board GPS satellites. They were made to tick a little bit slower before they were launched. If they hadn't been, the time signals broadcast down to Earth would get out of sync with us by about 40 microseconds each day, which doesn't sound a lot, but it means that the location measured by your satnav would drift by about 10 kilometers every day. So there is the theory of relativity in daily life. I hope your heads can cope with all of that. Thank you very much for the questions, and please do keep sending them in by all the available means. Thanks for that, Mark. Before we go on to the feedback, many of our listeners will be interested to hear that Jodcaster extraordinaire Jen Gupta has passed her viva and is now officially Dr. Jen Gupta. So we just want to pass our congratulations on to Jen. Yay, well done you. Yay, well done Jen. And she's going by Dr. Jen rather than Dr. Gupta to make him sound more friendly. Dr. Jen, yeah. Uh, So first we have a postcard from Mark who says, Love the show, thanks from sunny Scotland. And rather bizarrely finishes it with P.S. Merry Christmas. So Mark, if you'd like to get in contact and explain to us what that meant, we would be very grateful. Liz? Right, so for we got an email from Stella. Um, it's a correction because um, in the August edition in the night sky, Ian mistakenly said that Jupiter will reach a magnitude of minus 3.3. And Ian should have said that Jupiter will reach a magnitude of minus 2.3. We apologize for that error and we thank Stella for pointing that, that one out. On the forum and on Facebook, we've had lots of people paying tribute to late and great Sir Bernard Lovell. I would like to thank Paul Wells, Cy Foster, John O'Leary, Chris Barber, Mark C, Rapid Eye, Earth Units and Junior Edge for their condolences. And if any of you want to give your thoughts on Sir Bernard Lovell, there is an official uh, condolence uh, forum on the Manchester University website and we'll link to that in the show notes. Um, Also I'd like to thank Junior Edge and Dr Evan Keane on Twitter. And as usual, thanks for all your tweets, retweets and follow Fridays. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On the forum at forum.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us post. The address is on the website. Thanks to Professor Alan Hood, Dr Jacqueline Hodge and Professor Ray Norris for the interviews and to Joe Bowler for the job bite. The editors were Dan Thornton, Liz Guzman, Kat Maguire, Mark Perver and Christina Smith. The producer was Kat Maguire. Until next time, Jod on! (laughs) 